As we uh, continue our service this morning, it is a quick reminder uh, where we are in Romans. We are in the midst of what we're calling the second section of God's righteous covenant faithfulness. So we talked about in the first couple of chapters the reason that God is right in acting, the human condition and the human problem. And as Paul transitions now to say, okay, God has a right to act in human history. It doesn't matter whether it's Jewish history or Roman history, Gentile or uh, Jewish. It is God's prerogative as the creator because of human rebellion, whether it's rebellion against his known law or whether it's rebellion against suppressing the knowledge that is present in creation and in us as human beings of who God is. God is right and needs to act. But it's not like he just got the idea yesterday. Paul is reaffirming that this is through his faithfulness to Israel, which was a faithfulness that was always meant to impact the entire world. And so just as all fell in Adam, how much more are we blessed, Paul says, in the birth, death, and resurrection of the second person of the Trinity? who became flesh and blood. So much greater was his offering than the failure of Adam because of who Jesus is. And so Paul continues to unpack these implications of God's covenant faithfulness, how he has been faithful to us, and how he's given us uh, reason to have faith in him. And not only given us reason, but by his spirit, given us the eyes to see and the strength and the heart to have a hope, a hope in the life that comes through Christ and not our own efforts. And so we continue that focus this morning, uh, really looking at the nature of fruit, uh, which is a regular and wonderful theme and image that Paul uses to describe the Christian life in its fullness and in its richness. So let's put the text in front of us. We're in Romans chapter 6. I'll read 15 through 23. Hear now God's word. What then are we, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as an obedient slave, you are a slave of the one to whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. 
But now, what, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit, of you, uh, the fruit gets, leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in King Jesus our Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we continue to rest in the sure knowledge that you are here, that you are amongst your people, that your dwelling place, you tabernacle amongst us. And we pray that as we continue to sit in your presence, that you would bless the preaching of your word. And that by your spirit, what is said this morning would be useful for the building up of your people. And Lord, whatever is not true or useful, may those words quickly be forgotten, that you might be praised, and that your people might delight in you even more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I will admit that what I'm about to say is not an exhaustive survey of uh, Christmas movies. We had a, a, a time where we were killing time, uh, looking, and if you go on Amazon, you notice like if you click on a movie and it gives you about a fifth, well, it seems like three, four minute summary of the movie and most of the scenes, which basically you watch the entire movie in the space of the preview. And, and, you know, there's a whole swath of sort of your Hallmark Christmas movies where a prince or a princess and comes and, and they have this wonderful Christmas experience. And, of course, you all know that in the end, the pauper and the prince get together and everything works out great. And that's maybe the spirit of Christmas. Or uh, the Christmas movies where uh, Santa saves Christmas or kids help Santa save Christmas. Uh, and then there's the great tradition of movies like uh, White Christmas, which I love or uh, A Christmas Story. The interesting thing about those films, and most of the films I'm talking about, is they have no reflection upon Jesus or what Christmas is in the sense of the Christian tradition. Even that great favorite, A Christmas Story, is interesting in the absence of any notion of Christianity in that idyllic 1950s Scene. As fun as it is to reflect on, there is no place for God in a modern sense of Christmas. There is place for human spirit. There's place for kind of solving problems of an amorphous sense of wrong. But there is no place in Christmas movies, most often, for true Christian Christmas implications. So I'm going to say that the best Christmas movie I'm aware of is actually Groundhog Day. And the reason I say this is because it embodies the reality of a fallen human being who comes into sure knowledge that there must be something bigger than himself. If you remember the movie, there are uh, scenes where once he realizes that he is caught on this endless cycle, his first response is the seven deadly sins. And he literally, and the movie is written in such a way that he goes through the seven deadly sins. And they all leave him completely unsatisfied. So the next step is, of course, a desperate attempt to die, which he is incapable of doing. There are some hilarious scenes as he tries. 
And then what happens is he encounters a homeless person and he finds out that this person who he begins to respect and feed has a heart attack at the same point every day and it doesn't matter what he does. Even if he takes him to the hospital ahead of time, he can't stop death. And there is one scene where he looks up as the man dies again in his arms and he's looking for something other than himself and he gives up himself functionally and begins to pay attention to the people around him in the town that he is trapped in. And by the end of that movie, he is doing more good for more people than you and I can possibly imagine doing in a day. But because he has the ability to study them, he knows when the kid's going to fall out of the tree. He knows when the mayor's going to uh, choke on uh, an hors d'oeuvre. And he's there. Not only that, he begins to joy, enjoy the, the virtues of, of art and music and caring for others. He begins to love his neighbor as himself. Now, there are weaknesses in the analogy, to be sure, and even Paul admits that his own illustration of slavery has limitations. It is helpful to a point. We are looking at a passage where the implications, the fruit of what happens when we engage in a life of obedience to Christ, when we acknowledge that our life and our source comes from Him and not ourselves, that produces fruit very different than a life that pursues the self, either through religious or irreligious means. So I want to ask this morning, first, how do we know? How do we know whether we are pursuing a life that Paul warns us against? Because he's warning both Jews and Gentiles about following a life that produces fruit that is death. And then secondly, why is fruit so important? So briefly, how do we know and why is it important? First, how do we know? Verse 17. Uh, verse 17 says, be, uh, But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, but have become obedient from the heart to the standards of teaching to which you are now committed. It is, as Paul's been saying throughout chapter 5 and 6, faith. Faith in what God has done. Paul says God has done this to you, which we acknowledge and believe in. We function out of a faith that we are not the same. As we looked at in the last couple of sermons, we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. Well, I don't always feel dead to sin. In fact, I feel a lot more alive to sin than I do to Christ, often. But just because I feel it doesn't mean it's true. I have faith that my feelings of closeness to sin are the dying embers of that relationship. And what is true is that I am more and more understanding what it means to be alive in Christ. That is a step of faith. And Paul continues to reiterate that it is God who is the prime mover. That it's our faith in what God is doing, not in our own efforts. Because when we begin to delight in the fruit, the temptation is going to be, of course, to have faith in our fruit rather than Christ. And so sometimes we push against sanctification and we push against the desire to bear good fruit because we're 
told or we tell ourselves that if I focus on fruit at all, I will worship the fruit rather than Christ. Legitimate concern, but not one to stop us from producing fruit. So we reiterate, as Paul does, that we know the difference between a life following God and a life following the pleasures and the needs of the flesh starts with faith. Faith that I'm not doing that. Faith that even in the midst of, in the midst of mixed motives, that God can bring fruit out of my life because, again, it's He who brings the increase. It is always a step of faith to engage in the life of Christ. But the second way in which we know is that there is real fruit. It's not just an internal thing. It's not just an intellectual thing. But there is real fruit. And fruit is an important word for Paul. And we should assume the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we should assume that Paul's teaching is consistent from Galatians through Romans. And so when we see here that he wants us to produce fruit, that there's an expectation in verse 22 of producing fruit, that that fruit is rooted in Galatians 5. It starts in verse 13, and it talks about the power of what God is doing. He says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Not surprising that Paul sounds like Paul. And that as he reiterates and reinforces that the beauty of bearing fruit and the beauty of being alive in Christ and no longer being dead and a slave to sin is freedom. And every time the enemy tells us that following God is a dreary, drudgery, legalistic toil, we are reminded that really and truly following Christ is freedom. And in fact, the interesting thing is, we can tell when it's religious duty, when it does suck the fun out of life, when it does stop us sharing... How many words can I get out in one minute? Trying to. Uh, When we see as the result of our Christian life judgment and distance from others. Right? The challenge and the reason that we know that some of Pharisaism went down the wrong road is that it was kind of repulsive to most people. It didn't actually allow you to engage. The evidence of following a religious self-righteous notion that leads to death is unpacked in parables like Jesus' man on the side of the road where a Jewish man is beaten up and two Jewish folks walk by for good pragmatic reasons that would have actually defiled them or not let them do their jobs. And so it's left to a Samaritan to care for the man on the side of the road. See, that's when you know whatever your religion is, is not following Jesus, but following religious duty. And so when we got to don't dance, don't drink, don't smoke, don't go with girls that do... There was a way in which we began to draw from the culture, create religious barriers, and we became increasingly really intolerant. Intolerant of people who did find themselves pregnant out of wedlock, 
or did struggle with mental illness, or did have marriages that were in trouble, and we increasingly had to promote ourselves as ones without failings and brokenness and sin, and inevitably that created death, created marriages that rot for years from the inside out because it couldn't see the light of day. It separates people from family members because we can't acknowledge the seasons when it's easy to love our children and when it's more challenging to love our children, and to do so in the sure knowledge and freedom that we're seeking to follow Christ, not some pretty version, not some nice version. A nice version of Christianity doesn't fit with the gospel. In fact, you can't find the word nice in the Bible when it reflects people. I suppose it's okay to use the word nice if we're talking about a nice day. But being nice and having a nice religion usually tends to make things placid and to cover up the difficulties of life. Jesus is not nice, but he embodies the fruit of the Spirit. He is gentle and kind and patient and loving. And sometimes loving means saying, you're not living with a man you're married to. And sometimes it means you who are without sin cast the first stone because I'm going to identify with somebody that you want to judge as beneath you. And sometimes it means in the very challenging way that sometimes Jesus confronts his disciples, how long must I spend? Where is your faith? It's not a nice thing to say. Nice person wouldn't confront their disciples in the midst of a storm where they're terrified and where they're wondering what's going to happen. Nice people don't say, where's your faith? Our goal should never be to be nice. It should be to be Christ-like. And understand that in the way in a lot of things in this world, we modify what the fruit looks like. But the proof is always in the eating. The proof is always in the way it's consumed by others because trees don't eat their own fruit. The fruit is for the other. Does it bring life? Galatians three and its sorry, Galatians five and its description of the fruit of the spirit is far more dynamic and compassionate. It's not nice to let somebody do something that they really have no ability to do if it's going to wound them or hurt them and their family. Sometimes the nicest thing to say, sorry, the most loving thing to say is no. Gently, kindly, patiently, the fullness of the fruit of the Spirit. Not just one. Because as we know, truth without love is a resounding gong. But love without truth, well, according to the Bible, isn't love at all. And so Paul, in the midst of this unpacking, says, look, you were pursuing death. Well, I was a pretty pretty decent person. Well, you were for a pagan, but that's not going to get you into heaven. Or you were for a Jewish person, but that's not going to get you to enjoy the kingdom of God. No, it is by faith in the transforming worth that we died through baptism to our old self, were raised with Christ, as Paul says. 
think that's the challenge for me of the Christmas movies that I watch is that they're so nice. The reason Groundhog Day is a little bit challenging is there's a lot of parts of it that aren't. They're hard to watch, both about my own heart, but also what it means to love the other. Fruit is for the other. It's not for our own consumption. So why? Why this focus on fruit? Well, according to Paul, fruit is for holiness. It is about being set apart. It is also because it's the destination of life, the age to come. You see, I don't know how gentleness and patience and kindness work in a place without sin and death. I don't know why we need them. But in theory, we do. Because these are eternal characteristics of God. Whatever the new heavens and the new earth are, I'm going to tell you, it ain't going to be nice. But it's going to be without sin. And it's going to have all of these characteristics of love and growth and fruit. See, Paul's argument here, Paul's encouragement as he wraps it up in verse 20, uh, 22, is, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, right? Growth in Christ-like character, which is a work of the Spirit as He leads us through the Christian life. And this ends in eternal life. Now again, this is not a wonderful life. This is not where you die and then become an angel and then if you work really hard helping humans not do knuckleheaded things, you get wings. No, this is eternal life now. This is living out the kingdom now. See, right now we can be kind and patient and gentle and the characteristics of who Jesus are can and will be lived out through His people corporately and individually. We're in eternal life. We, we're in the already, not yet. But the spirit of Christmas is not, won't it be great someday when those things happen? But in the birth of Christ and in His death and resurrection, the fruit is possible now. Fruit that lasts through the long winter. To the eternal life ahead. It's already and it's not yet we can bring a bit of the eternal life into the present. Which is what is really at the core of redeem the time because the days are evil. The first part of Groundhog Day, his ability to repeat endlessly the same day, is an endless repetition of evil consuming himself. And then, as I already pointed out, when he begins to live a life reflective of the fruit of the Spirit, in one day he learns over the period of many days, he redeems the time and he knows where everyone in need is going to be. And he's able to orchestrate his entire day around caring for others and delighting in the richness of this little town he lives in. 
Imagine the creator of the universe who has the whole universe at his disposal putting himself in one small location on one planet in one corner of that planet and seeing over and over again the things he knows that humans are capable of doing and yet planning and redeeming the time so that he cares for more people in the space of three years than you and I usually notice in the course of a lifetime. That's redeeming the time. To know what is around us. To know that we are secure. And that we can live that eternal life now with an eternal sensibility and ethic. No longer concerned wholly with our momentary needs knowing that they are met and they are important to the creator of the universe. Therefore, our faith is that he will meet those needs. Even as we can be the fruit that sustains and nurtures those next to us. There's a lot that could be said in this passage about sin and slavery. It is that sense, however, that the thing we want most is the thing we can never have. A life focused in personal independence and personal security. Adam and Eve's temptation was, you can be like God. Paul reminds us, no, you can't. You'll either serve sin and death or you will serve Christ. The tragedy was that there was never autonomy on the table. The lie was we were never going to be anything but wonderfully and fearfully made. And when we reject who made us and who tends us, then we die away from the vine and we are not able to produce fruit. But in Christ, we produce fruit beyond what we could imagine. couple of questions or encouragements as we end this year, which has been dark and which has made it hard to care for others by the very nature of the thing that plagues us and hunts us. Encourage you first and foremost to again reflect this year and hopefully the catechisms that we publish in the bulletin and walk through together will encourage your faith your faith in who and what God is and how he has ministered to you personally and to the world that he loves. But in the midst of some of the strife and the difficulty that we've faced geopolitically and within our own nation, I want to encourage you not to be nicer in 2021. Being nicer won't help. It'll just delay the inevitable rupture. But my stars, commit ourselves yet again to living like the age to come has already come, to embrace the fruit of the Spirit, to follow Christ in and through the joys and the sufferings that 2021 will bring. The wages of sin, a focus on the self, a focus on self-protection, will always be death. 
But the free gift of God is eternal life in King Jesus our Lord. May that be our focus and the fruit of our lives in 2021. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we are in the beginning, the middle, and the end of it all. We thank you that you give us vision of it from your word, that you comfort us with the sure knowledge of who you are and who we are in you. We pray, Lord, that you would graciously encourage us, strengthen us, that the fruit of the Spirit might pour out of us, might grow, might be a blessing to each one in this room and, Lord, to our community that your name might be praised as the great gardener, the great tender, the great giver of life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.